tech marketers gather around the watering hole. Today we are talking about personalization with the founder and CEO of Turtle, Nick Mason. I think this is a particularly good episode and you can tell because I hardly do any talking at all. There is a lot to be learned here. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as we'd enjoyed making it. And now I will hand right over to Gareth. Hello uh, and welcome to another episode of The Watering Hole. Um, As if digital wasn't already hugely and increasingly influential, um, even before roughly this time last year, it is now, of course, for reasons that are pretty self-evident, not just a marketing and comms channel, but in many respects, the marketing and comms channel. Um, That's what it's become since this time last year. And digital experiences are becoming heightened and accelerated, um, but they've also to say the least, become quite commonplace. And that, in turn, is seeing digital channels become saturated and and therefore, kind of in inverted commas, less effective. I'm not sure exactly where this stat comes from. Was it our research, John? I'm not sure. But 44% of B2B tech marketers think their biggest challenge through this year is going to be tackling digital fatigue. Today's podcast is going to see us taking a look at that issue and discussing how brands can achieve relevance and results through personalization and interaction, uh, how they can ensure their digital channels don't get fatigued uh, and fatigue their audiences. So I'm joined today by Nick Mason, founder at uh, content personalization specialist Turtle and by Together's John Busby. Morning, guys. Perhaps you could introduce yourselves, Nick. Morning. Yeah. Hi, Gareth. Uh, Hi, John. So, yeah, my name's Nick Mason. I'm the founder and CTO at a company called Turtle. We uh, are in the content automation space. We work with large enterprises to, unsurprisingly, automate and improve uh, the quality of their content. Awesome. So, hi, listeners. Again, it's John here at the CTO at Together. Uh, I'm I'm here taking my usual approach to technology, hopefully going to be grilling Nick a little bit and going to be incredibly passionate about how we use some of Turtle's wonderful and fantastic technology across our clients. <laughs> so just actually before we go any further, I introduced Turtle, Nick, as a content personalization specialist. Is it worth drawing a distinction between personalization and automation here first? Uh, potentially. Um, I think what we do is we automate the personalization. So you can kind of look at it, uh, you know, through either lens of that telescope. Um, but really what we do, where the business started, if I'd spend a couple of minutes, is we started as a, actually a psychology experiment into the performance of digital content. Um, and what we realized from looking at psychological research into how we read is that if you made a list of things to do, if you want people to actually engage with and read your content, most business content appears to have read that list and done the exact opposite. Uh, And so we figured maybe there's an opportunity for someone to read the list and pay attention to it. Uh, And so that's where our product came from. And, um, you know, just in the last sort of 18 months, two years, we've really honed in on personalization uh, as a key key driver of engagement. I know that's something we're going to come on to talk a bit more about in a minute, but um, that's, that's really our story. And the automation bit, as I say, is really around the automation of that personalization stage so that you can do some of that stuff at scale. But um, yeah, that's kind of a high level of, of what we're about. Yeah, the the, the idea of uh, of content not being worth reading is something very close to my heart. Obviously, mm-hmm. being a being a, a senior writer here at Together. Um, yeah. Before we move on, on, then I think it's probably worth doing this, although it may, on the face of things, sound like a slightly obvious thing to ask. Let's look at, at first at, at digital fatigue. You know, what exactly do we mean by this? I mean, after. A year or more of remote working and lockdown et al, you know, it's a concept that's going to be familiar to everyone who's not living off the grid. 
But how exactly does digital fatigue manifest itself, particularly in a marketing context? Do you, do you want to pick that one up first, Nick? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think it's just everything is digital, isn't it? I mean, I was, you know, we all know jumping from Zoom to Zoom and, and Teams meeting to Teams meeting. It's just it's it's the repetition. It's the monotony of the thing. And I think, um, you know, there's multiple different ways that it manifests itself, but but fundamentally things fade into the background, you know, they fade into the background noise. And the job of marketing, I think, always is to provide signal through that noise and to provide cut through. And I think just because everything is digital now, there's no, you know, I can't remember the last time I did a face-to-face meeting with someone. Um, it, it's very, it's easier, easier and easier with every passing day for stuff to fade into the background. And I realized the other day um, that I, I don't actually open emails anymore if I don't know the name of the sender. And I'm sure that didn't used to be the case a year ago. I'm sure I used to at least look at the subject line. But my filter now, because I get so much coming through my inbox, it's like if I don't know the name, I don't open it. And and we've seen this, um, you know, just one example of this um, with our with our outreach. So we have an SDR team um, who go out to, you know, try and find people for us to talk to, to, to talk about our product. And, um, you know, 12 months ago, they could send emails and then follow up by phone. But what we've realized recently is they have to do the phone call first, because if people don't know the name, if they don't remember the name of the person they just spoke to on the phone when they're sending the follow up email, they're not going to open it. And um, we've observed kind of a four, four X difference. You know, if you make the phone call first and then send the email so they, so they know the name on the email, at least it rings a bit of a bell. You get a four X increase versus if you do it the other way around. So that's just one small example. But it's all those things where everything is digital, as you say. And so it's far easier just to fade into obscurity in the background if you're not thinking about this stuff and keeping things fresh. So playing devil's advocate for a second, you know, having to make the phone call first. Is, is, are we saying that digital is taking a back, a back seat to the phone suddenly? I think I think we've seen that for uh, for our outreach um, definitely. But what we do know is it's the combination of both that let us book meetings. So right. you need the phone call and then you need the follow up, which is through digital. And I think what the phone is providing in that case is that bit of recognition and and sort of so that the the email stands out in the inbox. Now, mm. phone may be one of several ways that you can achieve that. But mm. what it but the the point I'm making, I suppose, is that um, you know the email on its own is no longer enough. There needs to be something in there which makes the person see this as not part of the background noise. Now, we're using the phone, um, but there's other ways you can do that. I, know, I, know, I'm, I, think, I think that 4x difference is fascinating. And there's a quote that I picked up at a, a Dreamforce years ago, um, back in 2017, I think this was. And, I, and it's stuck with me ever since, which is you know, the, the use of artificial intelligence and the use of... of um, algorithms inside in business today will reach a point where it it doesn't make sense to organize things by date anymore and if you think about the one thing that we go to um, every day it's our email it's organized by most recent at the top all the way down to to um, uh, you know oldest at the bottom but what you've just said there is actually you sort it by relevance and that's kind of one of the most important items of personalization really um, and so it just it just struck me as like this this is this is just going to become more and more relevant, um, uh, you know, as as digital fatigue increases. Uh, I think that's an absolutely fascinating stat for yourself, like four, that four times increase just by by using the phone first. But you know, now we probably need to be looking at what the next thing we need we need to do. Uh, you know, one thing I'm particularly passionate about and see at the moment is is the use of audio as that Goldilocks medium because people can listen to things whilst they're away from their screens and you can still have them actively cons- consuming content. So hopefully this podcast falls into that into that band. The statistic, because I'm updating my client services uh, brief for audio, 
and when I made the uh, when I made the presentation, the average amount of audio online audio listened to a week was four hours. And uh, two years later, it is 13.3 hours a week of online audio consumed by the average person, or by the average consumer of audio. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. But the, the, the problem, I think, with all of these things is that it, it is a constantly moving target by definition. So, you know, the, uh, you know, the minute, the minute that that stat is known, everyone then goes and tries to prioritize audio. And I don't know if you guys have seen, but this is making me think of a lot of posts I've seen on LinkedIn recently with people complaining about uh, algorithmic outreach on LinkedIn. So you, you guys must know this where, um, you know, someone likes a couple of your posts and then they leave a comment and then they connect with you offering their services, right? And uh, I see posts all the time now, people moaning about this and saying, oh, there's clearly a bot and all the rest of it. But back when that started, that would have worked because I, I remember like six or eight months ago, if someone liked a couple of my posts and then tried to connect with me, I'd be like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, they, they like what I wrote. That's great. But now people have picked up that that's a way to get through to people. And so they do. So this is the thing. It's always moving. And, and this thing, you know, whether it's the phone, whether it's audio, whether it's the, the LinkedIn approach, it's like, you know, the, the, there's always that, that struggle to get through. Funny story on LinkedIn, actually. There was, this was a few years back, but um, again, Salesforce reference. Um, I, I Someone connected with me on LinkedIn and just said, oh, you know, hi, John, uh, your name came up in a conversation with XYZ, you know, it'd be great to connect. And you kind of, you, you naturally have that, have that inclination to reach out because of, because you've been discussed, you know, you've, you want to find out what's, you know, where your lead came from or why you, why you were inserted into that conversation. And the, uh, it just happened. I, I, I happened to be at Salesforce Tower the next day um and and went, mentioned oh like, apparently my name came up in conversation it didn't at all that was just a lead gen <laughs> technique and they had to admit it to basically be like yeah we got you yeah very sorry um yeah, yeah. but it's yeah it, it is i i think it, this comes back to something i'm always passionate about there needs to be an element of of authenticity of, of of being genuine alongside these elements as well so this so this is really interesting right what, where we're getting into now because what we're talking about is we are getting onto the subject of personalization and relevance, right? Because all of the tactics that we've discussed, um, audio is slightly different, I guess, because it's a different channel, is all about showing relevance and personalization. So, you know, it was your name that came up. It's about you. It's inherently about you. Same with the name appearing in the phone call. We had that phone call. But the problem that people are making is that they're taking a very short-term view. You know, they're, they're taking a short-term view of how this works and they're sort of burning their reputation uh, to get five minutes of someone's attention. And, and there's some there's really interesting research on this. I always recommend a book by um, Robert Cialdini uh, called Influence, which is about I always go on about this, which is which is about how you persuade people. And his point on this is, is, yeah, there are different persuasion tactics that you can use. So like uh, showing relevance, showing that you're like someone. But his point is, is that if you don't use them in a long term, sustainable way, I in a mutually beneficial way. Uh, it's a race to the bottom and you will lose out. So this thing around like reaching out to people, you know, and, and pretending that they were brought up in conversations in the long term, that would decrease your opinion of that person. They'll get the meeting. But as you say, you know, it, it's it's like a downer when you find out actually you just tricked me. So it's always important with these things, with personalization, any kind of persuasion technique that you play the long game. And the long game is around how do I offer mutual value? So it's kind of comforting because it does all come back to at the end of the day, uh, being a good person, which I find uh, somewhat reassuring. I'm finding out live now in this conversation that I'm not coming up in these conversations that the people on the are telling me about. And it's balls out ruin my morning. <laughs> We're clearly not important, nearly important enough, are we? So what, what's coming through loud and clear here, guys, is that um, 
you know, real interaction and personalization and authenticity, which is an interesting word as far as I'm concerned. It might be interesting to explore that. It, it be, I think it would be useful to explode one or two myths around that right now so the idea of personalization it's a it's a very nuanced idea adding a first name and a logo does not amount to personalization assuming you know what content is relevant for them are these are these fair comments nick yeah absolutely um i think personalization you have to look at it not as a um not as a uh, sort of a, a wrapper um you can use it as a wrapper but it's about what's in the box right and, and personalization is about providing more value you know, and if we think about the examples of personalization that we all know and love, if you think about Spotify, um, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to tell it what music I want all day. It just picks the right stuff. Uh, that's valuable, right? It doesn't say hi, Nick, at the start of every track. It just offers me value because it understands me. Same with Amazon, right? Um, they just suggest products that are going to be useful. And where people get confused is that adding first name in the same way as the LinkedIn outreach, it's a signifier of personalization. It makes it look like it's personalized. The problem is, is then, you know, if, you, if you've got the personalization on the box and you open it and there's something generic in there, then that's actually a negative now. Um, and I remember I was at a conference probably 18 months ago now, and they showed that with well, the research that they'd done suggested that having high first name at the top of an email actually was beginning to turn people off, um, which is kind of weird because like, how do you send your one-to-one emails? But actually people were coming more and more skeptical of high first name because so often they'd seen that on the box, opened it, and then it was boilerplate email with nothing in. So personalization really is all about, is to me, is all about relevance and providing additional value value based on the fact that you understand the person at the other end. I'm, I'm so glad you said that, Nick. Like, And it for me, it's actually... The more subtle you can make the personalization in some ways, the more powerful it can be, the more persuasive if we if we're going to use those terms, because really what you're trying to move, trying to move from is making something more relevant to someone like I mentioned with my email, organizing your email by relevance instead of by date. Um, But then really in marketing, we want to move that up to a level of being more persuasive, um, as you as you mentioned, making make it increasing the influence just you know what what from your perspective and i'm probably going to get very tactical here like what are, what do you feel are the most successful ways to personalize you know if we we're discounting high first name uh for, for a second what are the most successful ways to to, to add personalization to a uh a, you know a, a document or a, a marketing campaign so so the thing with high first name is is it does kind of have its use and i i guess i'll, I'll come back to that but the most successful ways to personalize is it it, it varies um, and I think that if you've got a document, uh, you know, the way that we look at it is, you know, we write thought leadership, we write um, case studies, we write all sorts of stuff. But certain bits are relevant for certain people, um, similar to Amazon, right? Amazon has hundreds of thousands of products, millions of products, but only, you know, a certain number are relevant to me, irrelevant to you, whatever. And the trick is to put the relevant ones in front of the right person in the right way so that it's more valuable, right? Amazon don't make you search through the millions of products. They say, hey, John, looks like you bought uh, X, Y and Z uh, last week. Um, this might be interesting. So really the trick is, is to collect the data. McKinsey have a really interesting model, um, which is the four Ds. They, it's, uh, let's see if I can remember. Data, decisioning, design, and, and distribution. So the data is like the information that you know about the person, and every business collects huge amounts of data. Decisioning then is crucial. It's the bit where you take that data and you turn it into insights that allow you to understand that John is interested in X, Harry's interested in Y, and Gareth's interested in, in Z. And then you've got the design bit, and this is the bit that we do, where you take those insights and you plug it into content and then you create in our example three different versions of a single piece of content one piece scoped for john one for harry one for gareth 
and you send those out. That's the distribution bit. So that to me is the most effective way to personalize is to take your content, or at least this is the bit that we do, is to take the content and to work out what's going to be relevant to who to, to kind of orchestrate it so you can create an infinite number potentially of variations and send it out. Now, the problem that you have is that after you've done all that good work of personalizing the content, how does the person know it's personalized? right? Because it looks like every other piece of content. And that's why you still do need things like high first name. Uh, and you have to get creative with it, right? So you have to find ways of doing high first name to indicate to put the wrapper on the box to show there is something personalized in here, really, I'm serious, because otherwise, it's going to look generic. So you do need both. But the, the, I guess the point I'm making is that um, just doing the wrapping without the thing in the box uh, is, is not really personalization, in, in my humble opinion. Um. That's really interesting and, and something I'd really like to go back to, actually. But just there on the flip side of that coin, mm. we're in March 2021, suddenly. <clears throat> We've had a really interesting year. We've just talked about some of the things that, that are, are good to do. Do we have any cautionary tales? What are the things we shouldn't do? Uh, I, think, I think in some cases you can get too personal. Um, I think this is a thing. I've read some studies around... It happens to, it happens to me a lot. I, I, I get that a lot. <laughs> That's something to work on, maybe. Um, but if you, if, you, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you try and show people that you know things about them, that they may be uncomfortable, that you know this is kind of obvious... Um, then, then you know, uh, then that's uncomfortable, right? So uh, there's there's the um, there's yeah, the great you know. example, isn't there, of uh, what was it? Target in the US um, sending someone a uh, you know using their recommendation engine. So they had they did all of the the things you just mentioned from the McKinsey model. They took they took all this customer data and they found if customers buy certain products in a certain order, then they are highly likely to be pregnant. Um, was that was the is the oh, famous yeah, example, yeah, and they and they sent this yeah. daughter, this essentially sent this. I think it was a sixteen, seventeen year old girl, a set of coupons for pregnancy tests, and the father picked up on it and was relatively angry with them um, over 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 what the products they were promoting, and then had to roll back when he found out his daughter was actually pregnant. So it's it's like that's probably that's probably the best known example yeah. I think of it getting a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right, and and. Um... And really, it's it's always best done. I think personalization when it's not in your face, when it's <clears throat> when you're not sort of saying to someone. And there's a temptation to do this, not saying to someone, "Well, because we know X, Y, and Z about you, we've done this for you." It's just we just so happen to have created this piece of content. Don't ask us how we knew that this was going to be relevant to you. You know, Amazon. You know, I mean, they do say because you bought this, that, and the other, but they don't say here's fifty pages of what we know about you, and this is why we recommended these products. They just happen to recommend the right things at the right time. So I think it, it's best done when it's very subtle. That said, I think um, the thing I was going to go on to say is I did read about um, the idea that there's an uncanny valley in personalization. If you're familiar with the uncanny valley, which is where CGI gets so close to looking like a human being, um, but it's not quite there and it's weird and it freaks your brain out. Um, there's a suggestion that you can get there on personalization. I remember one company we were speaking to. <clears throat> they found that their personalization efforts, they got really, really personalized and it got more and more effective. Then they reached a point where it got so personalized and it dropped off a cliff. And they were at the stage of trying to work out why this was. Yeah, and this this was a couple of years ago and I don't know whether they actually resolved it. But I kind of wonder whether there is kind of an uncanny valley uh, element to personalization as well where you get so close that it gets creepy i think there's also a, the data point right so here in the u you know we're all in the uk right now um we've just exited the 
EU GDPR and just put UK in front of it. It's exactly the same thing for now, at least. Um, but the I'm sure it's going to change at some point in the future. But the uh, you know one one trend that we're seeing, you know, it's going to be expedited by Google removing third-party cookies from Chrome in 2022, so next year, is is that that level of data will start to go down. So I think people really are much more aware when they when you personalize something too far, when you go too far with their own information now. Um, you know, to, to your point, you know, it would be scary if I, if I logged into Amazon and, it's, and it told me the secrets behind the algorithm. Um, but as a UK citizen, I have the ability to go and ask them if I want, if I if I really want to, and that's that's woken a lot of people up to to, to privacy. So I think there's definitely a, a a line that you need to 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 walk with the data that you collect and what data you're actually able to collect right now and will be able to collect in the future, and and how you use that to to create implicit personalization if you will as opposed to interactively driven explicit personalization yeah. um, the, the other thing that we're seeing being really successful actually which i should talk about is um, allowing people people to personalize their own content so not needing to come with any data and we're doing this quite successfully with a number of people where you almost present them at the start of a start of a piece of content you present them with um hey before we show you this here's a few questions and it's done as like a fun quiz and people say, yeah, I'm this, I'm that, I'm whatever, you know, they know what they're sharing, they're in control. And then the piece comes out at the end personalized. Um, and kind of what's nice about that is they know what they've said. They're comfortable saying what they've said. They can skip it at any time and just choose to choose to read the content. And um, we're, I'm kind of surprised, perhaps I shouldn't be surprised at how successful we're seeing that being in terms of engaging people. Because there's something nice about the upfrontness of it and the optionality of it. Um, which is apparently quite appealing. So um, yeah, I can certainly relate to what you're saying on the uh, on that sort of data point. Uh, and uh, and, a- and actually, just on on that point, Nick, the I found the we were speaking to a, an interactive and personalised video vendor uh, a couple of weeks back, and one of the things they referenced, which I thought was was, was fascinating here, is that that I call that explicit personalisation. Right, you're explicitly. Ask, essentially, you're asking the user questions, and you're personalising based off that. It's not implied. Maybe that's not the right way of describing it, but that's just the, the, the definitions I would use here. Um, and they said, if you ask the user a question and then immediately use that in a response. So in, in this case, in your quiz example, instead of asking them to go through 10 questions and then personalizing, if you ask them one one question or one or two questions and then immediately showed them the value, they're much more likely and receptive to continuing to provide more information in the future, which I thought was a fascinating way of trying to design some of these experiences because actually you you, you can essentially open the user up to be more and more um, uh, willing to provide their information as they move as they move through an experience. I think there's a I think there's a really interesting psychological point here as well from a from someone who's been writing uh, in tech for longer than I care to mention. I think in, in, in marketing, I, I think the, the audience is very accustomed to being asked rhetorical questions. You know, you know, do you need a new mousetrap question mark? Well, the, but the thing is, they never get to answer that question. They might, they might say, get stuff. No, I don't need a new mousetrap. And so I think if you engage them in that way and you actually ask them a question and they have a, they have a, a mandate and a way of, answer, of actually answering, it kind of does psychologically pull you in. Would, would you go along with that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think I think the the instant kind of payback that John's talking about in that question is like, that's a psychological effect, right? I did this and I got this value. And really, the, the whole the whole conversation, I suppose, can be can be wrapped up um, 
around the idea of how do you offer more value that that's really when personalization is being done properly and if you can shorten the path to value and increase the value on the other side you know if you could ask one question of someone and then um you know provide them with exactly what they needed magically somehow it have to be a very clever question you'd be done like that would be that would be like nirvana right and we're not quite there yet but but you're right it's like the shortening of the of 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 the time to value and and the size of the value on the other side and yeah the, the shorter the quiz can be the the better just on that point also i had a conversation with a with a, a really good friend of mine the other day and he's um he's a head of talent and he's recently joined a a, a new company who they need to grow it's something like by about 750 people over the next 18 months which is obviously a, a big and he was talking to me a little bit a bit about about lead gen and you know do you, do you think there's a call for a lead gen or a demand gen campaign here and, and, and in a funny kind of way I said, I said yeah and what kind of content should we be thinking about and you know top of funnel middle of funnel bottom of funnel and you know how do we engage these people and <clears throat> it's a very very similar it's basically a marketing campaign that he needs that he needs to produce and um I think he's struggling with some of the, his new company's idea of what constitutes content and and personalization and authenticity and, and, and all these good things and he, he was saying that they have a real um <clears throat> a real obsession with with ctas with calls to action and, and my view as well look it doesn't matter what the cta is unless it's promising them a, a million pounds it doesn't matter what the cta is if you don't if you don't get them that far if they don't feel engaged that if they don't feel that, that the message they're reading is irrelevant is relevant to them they're not going to get as far as a cta um, so this is really touching on something you were talking about earlier, in so, in so much as well, he, the the personalization piece. It has it has to run as a red thread through everything. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. Um, any thoughts there? Mm. Yeah, that's the whole recruitment thing is really interesting. We we've we increasingly bizarre well not bizarrely um, we we never intended to, but we're increasingly working with with recruitment companies for exactly the reasons that you say. Um, you know, if, uh, if if someone's got, you know, 10 jobs, job offers or 10 things that they're looking at, how do you stand out? You know, we're back to the same, we're back to the same problem, right? Um, you know, and so, and so the idea of taking a piece of content, uh, uh, like a job offer and sort of stuff about the, the culture and which office you're going to be in when you're finally allowed back into the office, etc. And turning it into something which is just for me, again, has that cut through and, and kind of allows that to work. And CTAs are, are like really interesting. And when you start talking about that, um, you know, we, we're, we're doing, we obviously use our own own product to do our recruitment. And we create personalized like, you know, hey, this is what Turtle can mean for John and for Gareth and for Harry. And we send those out based on the role that you're applying for, which part of the business you're going to be in. Like it's all personalized. We don't have any CTAs in those. And as you were talking about that, the thing I realized is the reason we don't is because exactly to your point, what we do is we, we look at how everyone reads the content. And the CTA is, did you read it? And and if you do that, then we're going to follow up. And we know that when we follow up, you're going to be interested. You didn't have to click a button because we know you're interested, right? Um, and what we actually started doing in the early days is we said, well, you know, maybe um, maybe we're being unfair, right? Maybe we're being unfair and uh, we should give everyone a fair chance, even if they didn't read the document. And what we found is we'd ring people up and we'd say, oh, like really, really, uh, really good to see that you, you read the piece that we sent you. And they say, yeah, it was great. 
we'd be sitting there thinking, well, you read it for five seconds. And we'd ask them a few questions and it would become, you know, clear that they totally hadn't read this thing. Like, it's not just that we were we were wrong somehow. Um, and the, the best candidates, the most engaged candidates, lo and behold, had read the thing for 15 minutes and they knew the business inside out and they'd really engaged. So we kind of dropped, we never had CTAs, as I say, but, you know, if we had, we would have dropped them just because, you know, the CTA is your behavior when when you're being sent this, this piece of content because we know you're going to be receptive to the next bit of outreach. Yeah. Um, so, which goes to another thing that is very close to my heart the, the content quality of which i guess personalization is a very clear subset yeah no i mean the the quality is everything right and, and it comes back to to what we said right at the start which is about this digital fatigue it's like how are you going to get my attention and um, you know five years ago or whatever you know it was enough to be sending emails to people you can't do that anymore you've got to always be staying up and that means that you've got to be offering something of a quality that no one else can offer and and you know that comes down to to the visuals to the feel and so you know what's really important to us and and the stuff that we lean on is about making content actually fun and something that you want to spend time with and again you know we, we we've mentioned psychology a bit but the idea really is to turn is to turn content from what's called an extrinsically motivated activity into an intrinsic one so the extrinsic is around i got to do it because i got to do it so you're required to read this report for school or you're required to fill in your tax return or i really need to read this job spec because like i really need to earn some money um you know turning it from that into actually this is kind of fun and i want to spend time with this and i want to explore and i want to engage and you know if you're able to do that if you're able to turn if you're able to give someone like you know some sense of joy in an activity that normally would be laborious um, you're going to be doing okay and that all comes down to quality and thinking about the person on the other side and trying to offer something that would genuinely excite and interest someone uh, from the perspective of both what's written and also the way it's presented which is you know they're two halves of the same coin and you've got to get both right john actually this this is really interesting because this this kind of dovetails really nicely with a um a podcast we did a little while, I can't remember what it was actually, but we talked about creativity versus technology. And and this to me is where that kind of crossroads comes. Nick's talking here about you know, content quality and so it's not just what you say, it's how you say it and, and the conduit through which you present it. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts there, John? I, I'm, I'm, I, I can't do anything else other than agree with you, Nick, in, in a lot of ways. I think that... The uh, coming back to the extrin, extrin. Uh, I can't even say it this morning. But that intrinsic. Well, I haven't had enough caffeine. That intrinsic kind of. You know, you want someone to engage because they enjoy it. Like that's that's really the the kind of you know the, the mecca, if you will. That's where we want to head to for 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 all of our marketing campaigns is that people don't want to they they don't want to lit read what we have to say because we've blasted them with 10 emails and and called them up four times like they want to read because actually genuinely we've got something again valuable to say that's relevant to them um so yeah i i i don't i don't think i can i can agree any any more there i mean gareth probably the point you're referring to is a, a lot with yeah, the the conversation we had tech versus creativity is also that you've got to start with the idea first. The technology is not necessarily the um, the, the differentiator here. You've got to start with good content, good high quality content that's valuable to your to your end end customer. So, um, I think that's I think that's probably where you were thinking there, Gareth. But that's what that's what stood out for me. The the intrinsic versus extrinsic um, motivation. I've never made it through David um, Daniel Pink's drive. I've tried, never made it through that whole book for some reason. But the 
um, uh, uh, it's, but it's a fascinating element of marketing when you when you really dive into it. As I as I think about it now, Nick, like really we are there just to persuade people that we are the right partner, we are the right business for them to spend money with. Um, and and if you can get that over to being you know to someone subconsciously wanting to just read everything you say then then you've won them over really it's yeah. just it's yeah fascinating I, I guess where I was going with that last point really was um, you look at creativity and technology and personalization all, all these things kind of converge on, on a spot and I and I guess I'm not sure this is a, a perfect way to look at it but you might call the confluence between creativity and technology and personalization and authenticity you might call that interactivity so it was a, a bit of a ham-fisted segue in t- trying to get into interactivity and interactive content and how that puts users in control of their journey and helps them choose their own path. C- can we talk about that for a moment? Absolutely, yeah. So so gen- generally, interactive co- content, you know, we've spoken about quizzes and we've spoken about the importance of people um, being able to put themselves into into the experience, right? So even answering a couple of simple questions. And the great thing about interactive content is that it allows you to do just that. So interactive content it means a whole bunch of different things, but fundamentally, I see it. I see it as allowing people to choose their own journey through the content and being able to explore, not being on a you know. You imagine a, a scrolling web page. You start on word one. You just got to scroll all the way down. It's like you're on a train track, right? The interactive element of interactive content is really about you know being able to explore and, and find your own way, and. Um, there's, there's kind of, and this is where you do get into the extrinsic and intrinsic motivations. Um, and there's a, there's a really interesting um, theory which we can talk about. It's interesting called self determination theory, which looks at how you create an intrinsically motivating experience. Um, but, but something that I always recommend for people to do because it is intrinsically motivating, i.e., you will want to do this, is there's a great YouTube video of uh, John Cleese um, of all people talking about a guy called Donald McKinnon. Um, and I really recommend watching it because it is incredibly amusing, but also educational at the same time. So it's a great example of, of what it's talking about. And what he talks about is the open mode and the closed mode of, mode of the human mind. The closed mode is kind of when you're in a hurry and, you know, you're you're looking to get from A to B. And actually new suggestions and new ideas and new facts, they're a distraction. The open mode is when you slow down and you become far more sort of um, amenable to considering new thoughts and new possibilities, right? And I think interactive content, if it's done properly and it creates that intrinsic uh, motivation, it, it, it puts the brain into that kind of open mode and you can get people to consider and, and start to think about things that they wouldn't previously. So I, I'd really recommend that John Cleese video, uh, even if the subject isn't interesting because it's John Cleese and it's very funny. Um, but it, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating look at how all this stuff works. Actually, that's fascinating. This is a little bit off topic, but you know, I've been noticing just over the last year, I have certain team members, right? So you're, Nick, you're probably the same. Managing technical people, we tend to be... Uh, you know, I've noticed they do have one of they do have those two modes, right? And I can normally tell which mode they're in, whether they have their camera on or not. If they've turned their camera off at the beginning of a call, the chances are, like I can normally tell through the tone tone of the voice and various other elements, like they've got something to get done. They're in a rush. They're in that closed mode. But if they're if if you're open, if you you know normally you have your camera on, normally you're you're ready to ready to speak. That's fascinating. Um, what you you talked about self that theory of self determination to to build intrinsic um, motivators. Like dig a, dig a little bit more into that if you don't mind. Sure, sure. So, so this is a theory that's been around for a while, and, and um, 
so to talk, uh, I guess we, we covered intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. But anyway, what research found is that, surprise, surprise, if you, if you can frame a task as an intrinsically motivating task, people want to spend more time with it, they do better at it, blah, 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 all those predictable things. Because lo and behold, we like the things that we enjoy and therefore we spend more time with them and, you know, you, you perform better at these things, you know. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is an interesting thing that I'm going through with kids, trying to teach them to read and so on. Um, you know, you, you come up against this. It's all psychology with kids. Um, but anyway, there, there's there's three there's three main bits on that self determination theory. As is as is, um, and I've, I've got a good example that you may have heard me say before because I always use the same example. Um, so so to create a good intrinsically motivating experience, you need to experience three things. You need to feel autonomy, i.e., you're in control of what you're doing and you can guide your own your own path. You need to feel relatedness. So look at this. This is like a perfect recap of the conversation to date. Um, relatedness. You need to feel like it's about you or you've put yourself into it in some way. And you need to feel competence. We like to feel like we're clever, like we had some degree of mastery over our surroundings, right? And the, the example that I always give for this is the, uh, the Coca-Cola share a Coke with campaign, right? Um, so uh, buying Coke and being in Tesco's generally is one of the most extrinsically motivating experiences in my life. Um, I do it so my family don't starve. Um, I take absolutely no joy uh, in being in Tesco's whatsoever. Sorry, Tesco's. Um, but what Coke did with their share of Coke with campaign is that they put names on the on the bottles, right? And if you analyze that through the lens of self-determination theory, it's kind of interesting because what they've done is they've tried to create a little of a little island of intrinsic motivation within the extrinsic universe of Tesco's. And if you look at how it works, if you start with relatedness, what they've done is they've put like names on the on the bottles and they're not random words. So when you look at the names, it's like, oh, that's my wife, that's my son, that's my friend, that's my whoever. You feel that degree of relatedness through the fact that they've done the names. And they later reprised it with holiday destinations because holiday destinations is, oh, that's where we got married, that's where we went on holiday, that's where we met. So they've, they've done that bit of relatedness. They've also done the autonomy bit because, you know, you can come along and there's no one there from Coca-Cola saying you must pick this bottle. I can pick an irrelevant bottle. I can try and find my best friend. I can do whatever, you know, I've got that autonomy over the experience. And there's also a, a small degree, admittedly a small degree, of competence because I have to come along and I have to have that thought which is aha I see what you did here you've put the names on the thing and I can have a bit of fun with this you know I can see what I can find and maybe I can find you know do that so they've kind of ticked all three boxes and it was a tremendously successful campaign which is why they did all three now I don't know whether Coca-Cola thought hmm Let's try and use self-determination theory to sell more Coke. Um, but to, to, as, as a man with a hammer, everything looks like a, like a nail and I can't help coming across and seeing that and thinking, well, it's a perfect exhibit of, of this stuff. So, um, yeah, that's kind of a fun example. But, I, but you're right, though. If you apply that to, let's say, you know, Turtles technology and a good B2B campaign, those three elements are there, right? You have the autonomy to browse and this is one of the you know the, the stats that i love to talk to our clients about uh, with your particular technology which is you know you have that that 700 higher engagement i believe if i've quoted that correctly nick um through using a turtle dot because people can flick through it like a magazine they have the o autonomy to go through it at their own pace but then you know as you as you mentioned uh, you know that by adding personalization you're making it more relevant to people you're you're adding that second tier in uh from, from the self-deterministic model and then finally hopefully if you've if you've targeted the content right people are going to understand it and uh, and feel that they can feel they feel clever by uh, having read their document and then hopefully sharing it with someone else um so i can see how that can be applied to really make uh the, you know, campaigns using this a lot more interesting harry you are un uncharacteristically quiet i'm biden mate i don't know 
anything about personalization. I'm not going to bring up the, I'm not going to raise the quality of this conversation. It's similar to door to door sales, the, the, the intrinsic motivation bit. When we were talking about the cameras being off, I was thinking about interrupting with, uh, when, when I did door to door, the type of things that you had to look for. And, and one of the things that could turn someone around, if you, if, if this person like eked his door open, you were like, there is a 0% chance this man has any interest in talking to me. One of the things you could do is go, hey, don't even worry about it and turn around. Mm-hmm. And then that type of person would often open their door and go, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> so this is, this is fascinating, right? This is fascinating. It gets onto a whole other topic of psychology, okay? Um, so it's, the, it's this idea of how you disarm people. And there's this really interesting guy who, again, I'd recommend look him up on YouTube called Chris Voss. Anyone know Chris Voss? No. Yeah, right. Okay. So he's, he's a classic. Oh, Harry, you will love him. So he's, he's an ex-FBI hostage negotiator, right? And, and he, he can get people to uh, talk to him and to uh, sort of open up and open, open the door, like you're kind of saying, so cleverly. And what's so interesting about what you just said is what you did is you admitted that you were wrong. Uh, when you knocked on that door and they didn't want to open the door, you essentially, in kind of body posture terms, you lay down, right? You you disarmed yourself. You you showed that you weren't a threat, right? And at that point, people suddenly become amenable to doing it. Um, so it's like really, again, fascinating the psychology of how you how you know when someone approaches a situation with a mindset, you have to personalize your approach in such a way to get the person to open the door. Whereas if they open the door with a big smile, you kind of don't need to walk away, right? And uh, these are kind of tricks that, that we kind of pick up and we all use day to day. But this guy, Chris Voss, has essentially made it like the study of his life. And uh, he's got some fascinating stories, as you can imagine. He wrote, a, he, was it a Never Split the Difference? I think I, I, I read that at some point over yeah, last That sounds about yeah, right. Fascinating, some of the techniques they use. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, a lot of it is, it gets scarier when you start to take them and go into NLP as well. Um, that's where it goes. Let's take it to another level. <laughs> So we've talked we've talked about personalization and automation and interactivity and authenticity. I guess what I want to do now is 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 look at you know what is the state of the union here? You know how well are we doing this in B two B tech marketing? Um, so first of all, how well are we doing it? And and if we're not doing it well, in what areas are we doing it effectively? In what areas are we doing it not so effectively? Um, and what, in your view, guys, is is, is holding us back? If I was being diplomatic, I'd say that there was room for improvement. Um, so that's what I'll say. Uh, I, th- I think a lot of businesses could do an awful lot of a better job. Um, but I, I do think that there is far more interest now in doing this. I mean, you know, we, we've seen over the last 12 months. I mean, I, I think uh, 2020 weirdly has made life, um, made things a lot clearer for a lot of businesses, and a lot of people. Because now, as I think you said at the top, Gareth, it's like everything is, is digital. And it's either synchronous or it's asynchronous. You know, you're either on a call with someone or you're sending something to them. And so 50% minimum of what this is about is the latter half of that is what you're sending to them. And so people are starting to focus on it. But I do think we're starting from quite a low bar, generally speaking. And I think the thing that holds us back in this is just habit. Um, You know, because we, we aren't used to a world where everything can be personalized to the nth degree. I mean, you know, it's only sort of the last five, 10 years that things like Amazon and Spotify have come along in the, in the B2C world, and we all know how quick that moves. Um, you know, and, and business, I think B2B has, B has been largely caught flat-footed, which is understandable because, you know, things move slower and, you know, there's more stuff involved and, you know. But people now, I think there's far greater impetus and, and um, interest around actually trying to, trying to be a bit more um, progressive uh, and, and a bit more sort of forward-thinking. So I think the biggest things that are holding us back are, are habit and, and, you know, are outdated processes. But I believe that there is a, a strong 
um, sort of uh, movement generally in many businesses to, to try and redress that. It's certainly, it's something that we're seeing. Yeah, so I, yeah, exactly. I would say there are three things that kind of jump to mind. And Nick, I'm, I'm sure you're, you'll have a view on, on all three of these that of why we're not using some of these, why we're not taking advantage of some of these newer technologies quickly enough. The first is, I completely agree with with Nick. Habit. We're just, you know, sometimes going and linking up the data that you have, and then briefing the copywriter to make write five different versions of an intro. Send like it's just it it's new and it's it's difficult sometimes. And sometimes, you know, I I always I, I can't remember where this quote's from. I think it might have been from the Apollo program or something random. You know, nothing worth doing is ever easy um and so i think a lot certainly in in b2b as as you know as as the new blood comes in i think we see a lot more people break those habits you be more willing to try it and i think we're we've really seen that a lot over the last couple of years i think the the statement from mckinsey is uh you know 20 the the pandemic in 2020 has kind of accelerated digital transformation by five to seven years um so you know we are seeing a lot of a lot of big businesses moving quicker than ever before. So the first is completely agree with Nick is 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 habit. Secondly, I would say data. Um, you know, making sure our, our your data sources are up to date enough to personalize correctly. And we've seen examples, you know, with some of our clients where they've personalized things incorrectly, either using the incorrect data or not really thinking through how some of their um, clients or some of their potential customers may view it in fact one potential customer viewed their went to a, a landing page saw their name inserted in a statement that was you know hi x why are you not doing y uh, and then called up their their account manager and was like why are you telling me i'm not doing this um why are you telling the world i'm not doing this so there was you know if you if you don't execute it well if you don't have the right data that that can certainly impact uh, things and then finally i'd probably say the third thing is it's related to data is just a lot of organizations don't have the uh, uh discipline to have uh, the the to, to report on what works and what doesn't and then iterate and learn i mean nick just the fact that you started this call by saying four times higher increase by doing the call first from sdrs over you know uh, uh, over um sending an email just shows that you know internally you have that Turtle has that discipline, but many of our organisations organizations just aren't set up to consolidate the data at the end of a campaign to be able to have those conversations. So, I, yeah, I think habit definitely plays a part, but there are there's certainly other things that I see I see kind of getting in the way of these elements on a day to day basis. Also, just who owns a lot of the data between those elements uh, can be a real challenge. It's great stuff, actually. I'm I'm actually really enjoying this one. Um, <laughs> So, are there any you know practical hints and tips and advice that we can give to B two B marketers looking to deliver more relevant, personalised, authentic content to their audience? I know we've kind of touched on this already, but are there any really real headline do's and don'ts, Nick? I would recommend that that people do some reading around the subject because um, it's very difficult just to sort of suggest you should you should do X, Y, or Z. You know, just off the bat um, because it's it's a process rather than an action, right? It's, uh, if that makes sense, it's, it's not an activity, it's an approach. There you go. That's a better way to say it. it's an approach. And so I think reading, I mentioned before McKinsey, the, the four Ds, I think that's really an interesting model to look at just to structure a framework. Obviously there's others out there, but that one's kind of uh, quite quick and easy to understand. R- r- remind us again, Nick, about the four Ds. So the four Ds, this is McKinsey. It's uh, uh, data, which is 
having the right data, as, as John rightly points out. Decisioning, which is taking that data and turning it into insights. So you may know that John works where John works and is John's age and what have, have you. But what does that mean around you know what you should what you should send John or what you shouldn't send John? So that's the decisioning. Then you've got the design, which is how you execute that insight. You know what is it that you're actually going to send John now that you work. Sorry to pick on you, John. Now that you've worked out, you know what it is that's going to that's going to be right for him. And then uh, distribution. Uh, I think it's distribution, which is um, how you're going to get it to him. And um, so that that's well worth reading because it just um, sort of cements what this is, how this process works, what the approach is, and, and kind of provides a bit of a broader picture. So I'd recommend reading around it. The other thing that I'd say that we always encourage people to do, and I think is good advice no matter what you're trying to do when it's something new, is to start small. So start with something which is manageable. Don't try and boil the ocean. Do something really tiny. Um, and, you know, you, you can be, you know, for, for example, you know, we've, we've run campaigns with people around personalization where we say, look, you need to you need to have something on the box and you need to have something in the box. So, you know, just focus on. Uh, sorry, I, I should uh, say this under my breath. Put something relevant on the front cover, whether it's their name or their company name. Right. But then make sure that there's pages in there pages of content which are very, very relevant to them and don't waste their time with anything else. So put something on the box so they know this is personalized and then put something personalized in the box and just do that. Don't worry about anything else to begin with. Then we'll come back and we'll look at the data. Start with one thing and go from there. So that would be my advice. Like read up on the approach, make sure you understand it and what you're getting yourself into and then pick a really small pilot thing to do first. We've certainly tried to help clients through the personalization journey on their own site and there is the kind of, you know, when you're dealing with let's say thousands of articles um you know it can be overwhelming to be like how are we going to tag them how are we going to make them relevant how are we going to build that into a user journey you know build start with start with a few and and essentially you know look to test and learn from there um and make sure that you spend the time to set up that that foundation um of of data both input and and output um but yes i i'd completely agree with nick on that one it's there are so many different ways to approach personalization as well it, it can be you know it, it can be overwhelming just to just to get started and i would say the biggest the best thing you can do is to just do something um and then make sure you can you can learn from it one way or another um because other organizations are going to start doing this and if you don't um you, you know you, you will start to fall behind <laughs> in the nicest way i think absolutely and you know what what has come across loud and clear to me is also is that personalization is not a it's not a sliding scale it's not linear it's much more nuanced than that and as nick has just said in terms of going away and doing some reading on it even for me i think it's well worth doing so are there any points nick john harry that perhaps we you feel we haven't covered or anything else any big kind of flags we should be raising that we haven't talked about i'm curious back to the uncanny valley thing do you think that it is a valley or it's just a cliff edge? What is it the case that there's just a point where we don't like it anymore, or do you think that we can get we can get back around to a point where it's so personalised that I suddenly love it once more? Uh, that's a very interesting question. And um, if we if we take the the analog of computer graphics uh, CGI, I think we've crossed the uncanny valley now. So at least in the in the visual world, it's possible to get over it. Whether it's possible in the in the personalization world, I don't know. I have to confess, I, I didn't actually find out a huge amount about why they fell into that uncanny valley. But I think the the point was is they were they were having so much 
success with the personalization before they stepped into the valley that I think they just basically took a step back and carried on just getting the, the, the value they were getting anyway. So whether they ever made it to the other side or precisely why that uncanny valley appeared, I, I can't quite say. But I think that even if you weren't able to cross it, the value attained from getting to the edge of the valley is so great that it's still worth getting there. Sorry, that's a cop out. Um, <laughs> I need to call that person back up and find out what they ever did. But it's quite an eloquent cop out, Nick, I thought. Thanks. Yeah, I'm a master of those things. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, any closing thoughts, John? No, I think this has been an incredible podcast. Nick, thank you so much for joining yeah, us on this. Absolutely. You, you've certainly yeah, gave me you. a really you certainly it. gave me a few more things to read on my side. Apology. Yeah, it it just it's been a it's been absolutely amazing. Oh, thanks. Really enjoyed it.